The stories contained in this podcast are the recollections of the guests we've invited onto the show. We are an outlet for people to share their truths, and we accept no legal responsibilities for the stories contained herein. I'm Kendra Sheets. And I'm Rich Gill. And this is Enough, a podcast that aims to shine light into the darkened corners of the music industry while discussing the ways we can and should improve ourselves and in turn our community. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Enough Podcast. And I'm your host, Kendra Sheets. I am host number two, Rich Guild. Two, like, in tandem with one. It's not like a <laughs> hierarchy system. Yeah, I, was, I mean, we're like... Situation? On the same line, yeah. but you talked first, so... <laughs> I always talk first. That's true. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be talking about a man who is full of sweet emotion, a man who knows how to walk this way, a long-haired rocker who is not scared to get down with some love in an elevator. Stay tuned, y'all. This episode is all about Steven Tyler, you know, the lead singer of Aerosmith and his statutory rape case. Well, the train kept a rolling on those <laughs> references. How, how long does it take you to come up with all those? Did you go down the discography or... Just the one I might have Googled Aerosmith songs and then was like, how can I turn these into sentences? Sure. That works. It's good. I like it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so before we really get into the specifics, I do just want to say one thing. I was a huge Aerosmith fan for a very long time. Nerd. Totally. And I'm <laughs> going to get real nerdy on you. I think those first four albums were like rock and roll brilliance. They were great. I've seen Aerosmith in concert. I own a lot of the records. I used to play them all the time when I DJed. Sweet Emotion was my go-to touch tune song for a while. So <laughs> oh, no. I, was, I was into them until I, I stopped being into them. And I don't remember if I knew about the statutory rape stuff before. I, I don't think I did. If I did know, it was probably an uh, R. Kelly situation where I loved Trapped in the Closet so much that I was just like, Eh, it's fine. Traveling in the closet is hilarious. But as we've talked about then, I changed. <laughs> I used to be a piece of shit. People can change. I'm no longer the type of person who can separate the art from the artist when it comes to this stuff. So I stopped listening to Aerosmith and R. Kelly, Ryan Adams, Kanye. You get the point. So now that I got my little disclaimer out of the way, uh, let's talk about how gross Steven Tyler is. All right, let's get into it. So, last weekend, I was out on a little road trip, decompressing on garbage work days and whatever else, and Rich was kind enough to send me an online article that was published on Vice's website, entitled, Steven Tyler Confessed to Crimes of Passion with a 16-Year-Old in His Memoir. I just want to mention, just so everyone knows, this is a lot of what mine and Kendra's text messages, text chain is to us, is just like, sending back and forth like news articles about uh artists yeah. musicians and people getting being gross and allegations coming forward so yep that's pretty much it it's why i'm in such a fabulous mood literally all the time yeah right <laughs> so when he sent that and i read the the title i was like yeah i mean we knew that right i mean that book came out a long ass time ago but when we were drafting a couple of episodes prior to this one I was looking for an angle to talk about what I've been seeing, not just recently, but just in general for like a long time, which is just kind of this weird blind hero worship 
of musicians that have been problematic in the past, like Bowie, like Prince. These musicians and so many others did absolutely monstrous things with little to no remorse, probably no apology, and they still, to this day, endless amounts of praise. And maybe it's because they passed away in a time when call-out culture was at its infancy and a demand for accountability wasn't as strong as it is now. But also both of them died in 2016, just a year before Me Too really took the world by storm. So things were kind of moving in that direction at that point. So I know that's really where that's at. But they, for the most part, dodged the proverbial bullet of being publicly labeled rapists or abusers while they were alive. So when the Steven Tyler story kind of started to resurface, we thought it would be a good time to discuss what he did and how he will likely live to deal with the repercussions of his actions and, to be perfectly blunt, his bragging about it. To start off with, let's just give a little backstory about the story in case some of you out there are not familiar with it. So in 1973, at an Aerosmith concert in Portland, Oregon, Tyler met a woman named Julia Holcomb. At this time, she was 16 and Tyler was 25. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was 25, I had no interest in hanging out with 16-year-old high schoolers. That's me. Me too. I don't know what the other general consensus is. But uh, as the story goes, Tyler invited Holcomb back to his hotel after the concert where the two discussed her age before he, quote, performed various acts of criminal sexual conduct, end quote, on her, her, her lawsuit. The two of them were together for about three years uh, while she was 16 through the age of 19. And according to Holcomb back in 1974, Tyler actually convinced her mom to grant him guardianship over her. This would make it easier and legal for her to live and travel with him and with the band without Tyler facing any sort of threat of criminal persecution. Prosecution, but that still worked. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the phrase crossing state lines with Einer, probably most recently regarding Republican Congressman Matt Gates. So yeah, that's kind of where this whole thing circumvented the legality that an adult had a minor in tow as he traveled all around the country. And Tyler also told Holcomb's mom that he, you know, he'd be a real stand-up guy, right? He'd make sure that she'd have access to health care and that she'd continue her high school education. But of course, like, none of that happened. And instead, he provided her drugs and alcohol and introduced her to the lifestyle of a 70s rock star, which I'm sure was like absolutely insane and probably super appealing to like a teenager of that age and probably like even to people like into their 20s and maybe late 20s even now maybe in their 40s i don't I'm know i'm too old for a rock star lifestyle i go to bed fucking early these days but whatever <laughs> but you know, there's a little rock star lifestyle anymore yeah but yeah, so basically he promised, her, promised the mom the moon, the stars, and taking care of the daughter, and instead he just basically used her as, you know, a, a fuck doll and pride her with drugs and alcohol. To be blunt, yes. Uh, I mean, that's kind of where my MO is most of the time, right? Totally, yeah. <laughs> now, the other well-known fact about their relationship is that Tyler got Holcomb pregnant in 1975 and then convinced her to get an abortion. Holcomb reportedly, and I, she says this herself, uh, did not want to abort the pregnancy. And 
has spoken out against abortion in the past. She is a born-again Christian, anti-abortion advocate. And despite, you know, whatever your point of view on that subject is, I think we can all hopefully agree that for us, the positive part of being pro-choice is just that. Like, women have the choice, letting the woman choose what she wants to do with her body. But in Tyler's mind, he couldn't let her keep the baby. Just think of what the public would think if word got out that he got a 17-year-old pregnant. Now, today, it would be, like, the worst thing possible. And while the 70s were a little different, still, you can't really, as a rock star in your late 20s, early 30s, it's still not cool to get a 17-year-old pregnant. So the way he convinced her to do that was he told her that a recent apartment fire would have harmed the baby in utero due to smoke inhalation and a lack of oxygen. Eventually, after the abortion, Holcomb moved back to Portland. She got married, changing her last name to Misley, and as I mentioned before, became a devout Catholic. Now, what if we are lying? What if we're embellishing this entire thing? We're just pulling shit off the internet. It's a good thing that we can consult Steven Tyler's 2004 book, Does the Noise in My Head Bother You? A Rock and Roll Memoir, since he straight up admits it in this gross-as-fuck fashion in the pages of this book. And while the memoir does not directly name Holcomb, it's pretty clear who Tyler's writing about when he states he, quote, almost took teen bride because her parents fell in love with me, signed a paper over for me to have custody, so I wouldn't get arrested if I took her out of state. I took her on tour with me, end quote. He goes on to make me want to barf, up my lunch and dinner by writing, quote, with my bad self being 26 and she barely old enough to drive and sexy as hell. I just fell madly in love with her. She was a cute, skinny little tomboy dressed up as little Bo Peep. Side note, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah, what? Uh, she was my heart's desire, my partner in crimes of passion, end quote. Oh, gross. So gross, right? <laughs> Disgusting. Also, that's terrible writing. So yeah. Little Bo Peep. Ugh. Fuck off. Gross. <laughs> In December of 2022, mere days before the December 31st deadline, Julia Holcomb, now Misley, filed a lawsuit for California's Child Victims Act, which lifted the statute of limitations, which we talked about on a previous episode, on reporting childhood sexual abuse crimes. Tyler was formally named in the lawsuit, which accused him of sexual assault, sexual battery, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. So, to put it plainly, Tyler groomed, exploited, and sexually abused her. And while we've talked about how difficult assault cases are to prove in the past, which is why we say, they say, always believe the victim, it can be even harder to prove after a period as long as this. You know, this was in the 70s. We're in the 2020s now. That was, what, 50 years ago? Something like that? But these proceedings are different and possibly going to set a new precedent. The allegations are not new. Holcomb has spoken out against him before. But Tyler actually corroborates her story in his braggart-based memoir, and this can and likely will be used to support Holcomb's testimony. And it's also somewhat unique that this case is going to trial at all. I don't know how many of you listeners out there regularly follow celebrity rape and assault cases, but we do. 
And like Rich said, you know, it's probably one of the things we end up thinking about the most, which is why I'm like super content with everything all the time and not really like on edge most of my days at all. But so many of these times, these suits actually just, they get dropped or they get settled outside of court. One of the main reasons that cases get outside of the courtroom is because one or both parties don't want the details to be blasted into the public sphere. As we've talked about before, any fraction of reliving a or many traumatic events can be re-triggering for a victim. Also, it could absolutely crush the career of an abuser. Because Tyler bragged about his underage sexual escapades in his book, he already shared the details with the world while bragging about how bad he was. Uh, the <laughs> fact that the fact that this is going all the way to trial is extremely rare. Now, there's no public knowledge yet to know if Tyler was adamant about not settling. We don't know those particulars. Or maybe he still thinks statutory rape makes you a badass and, you know, it's super rock and roll. Woof. Or it could be that Holcomb demanded going public with her claims and refused any possibility of settlement. Either way, it seems that she's going to have a strong case as she can use Tyler's own words against him. Now, an argument that people like to bring up with some of these situations is that it was a different time. And it was, absolutely. The 60s and 70s were fucking wild. No rules. And while I can understand and appreciate not wanting to apply today's standards to some situations in the past, and I feel that some of that context is overlooked by younger generations, we're not talking about acceptable language. You know, words that we used to refer to one thing as you don't use them anymore. We're not talking about American Pie as like a gross teen sex comedy or smoking on talk shows. All of that stuff, yeah, it was a different time, a different era. Right. That's not what this is. We are talking about the law. Yeah. I think one of the most important things to remind everyone is that these dudes were breaking the law back then. I'm not talking about like breaking the law in like a cool way. I'm talking about in a like sick to your stomach, scourge of humanity, fuck you royally kind of way. And like when I think about like the crazy, like out of control hair bands of like the 80s, like what Brett Michaels makes poison seem like when he talks about it on Rock of Love. And even the rock musicians that redefined the genre in the 70s, I can't help but picture, you know, the screaming fans, the touting of free love, and that one slogan that's plastered on thousands of bumper stickers all across America, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So when I did a little research, I actually found out that the age of consent laws were about the same 50 years ago as they are now. Uh, mostly 18 in most states in the U.S. Some are 16, but most of them are 18. Sure as shit what happened with Steven Tyler in, in uh, uh, the West Coast, 18. But musicians were, and some still are, going around blindly breaking this law. And while the sex, drugs, and rock and roll mantra still reigns supreme, even in today's scenes, even into small underground culture, even in punk rock, sex with actual kids is always going to be gross as fuck. So as Kendra hinted at before, Steven Tyler definitely wasn't the only or the first musician to rape or assault a child or teenager. A similar story, another long-haired 70s rocker who some of you may have heard of named Ted Nugent. What a stand-up guy. Super stand-up guy. Yeah. Big Trump buddy also. He kind of followed Tyler's lead, and in 1978, the 30-year-old 
Nugent became legal guardian, again, with the permission of the girl's parents, of a 17-year-old that he was dating. And let's talk about age of consent, as Kendra just mentioned, before some of you jumped down my throat about the age of consent in Hawaii, where they were, during that time being 16. Yes, that is true. However, it doesn't make it any less gross for a 30-year-old to adopt a 16-year-old so he can have sex with her. Legal or not, that's just disgusting. So weird. So weird. Yeah. Elvis Presley started his relationship with Priscilla when he was 24 and she was 10 years his junior. 14. She was 14 years old. He was super controlling of what she wore, how she looked. He hit her, gave her drugs when she was still underage, specifically dexedrine, which is usually prescribed for patients with ADHD. She actually overdosed and almost died from that. There were multiple allegations from both women and underage girls of additional violence, sexual assault, and grooming when it comes to Elvis. Yeah, for sure. I don't think many people are still championing for Eric Clapton. Um, he was in Cream, The Yardbirds, Derek and Donos, and his music plays in every single long elevator ride in the entire world. He's a real bastard. They give me tears in heaven. <laughs> See, I now you're getting it. All right. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's bastard, and yeah. he has some real shitty views. My God, racist. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So he he makes our our cut for this this episode because when he was 23, he had a relationship with a 17 year old who he got hooked on heroin, and she later died from her addiction. So like guns again, stand up guy. Both Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones and the infamous sentient leather handbag that's been left out in the rain, Iggy Pop, have had sex with 13-year-olds. I don't need to say much about Michael Jackson, I'm sure. Jerry Lee Lewis married his underage cousin. Uh, we talked about Ian Watkins before, but another person who's maybe not quite as bad, but still up there, glam rocker Gary Glitter, who was recently released from prison after serving only half of his jail sentence was convicted on child porn charges. If you don't know who Gary Glitter is, uh, if you've ever been to a sporting event in the last ever, you've definitely heard the annoying rock and roll part two song that he does. If not, look it up after two seconds, you remember. He raped a 14-year-old and a girl under the age of 10. He was charged with eight counts of sexual offenses against 12 to 14-year-old girls. He committed obscene acts with 10 and 11-year-old girls, was accused of seven counts of assaulting a 12 and 13-year-old in its dressing room, I can continue as the list goes on and on, but I won't because we don't have enough time. We've talked about this one before. Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page not only had a relationship with a 14-year-old, he had his manager basically kidnap her and bring her to him and then held her hostage for years to keep the public from finding out and to avoid all legal trouble. I hate to break it to you guys, but your beloved David Bowie made our list. And as I said before... I don't know why this dude seems to skirt the bad rap that others rightfully get. You know that 14-year-old that Rich just mentioned, right? With Jimmy Page? Yeah, that's Lori Maddox. And before she was stolen away from Jimmy Page, David Bowie took her virginity at 14 years old. She actually wrote a piece about it called I Lost My Virginity to David Bowie, Confessions of a 70s Groupie. And then we've got Minneapolis-based rock deity Prince, who kept a teenager named Anna Garcia at his Paisley Park compound. He met her when she was 15. They started a relationship when she was 17. He was 13 years older than her. He was 30 years old dating or it was somehow with a 17-year-old. I'm 36 and I don't even know what 17-year-olds are talking about anymore. They're in another world 
I am. And after Anna, Prince dated and eventually married, I believe it's Métis Garcia, a dancer he met when, he, when she was 16. And while they may have tried to hide it from the public visually, it's been in the music all along since rock and roll began. The Rolling Stones sang about underage girls and stray cat blues. The Beatles, I saw her standing there, begins with, well, she was just 17, you know what I mean? And the way she looked was way beyond compare. And Steven Tyler, Aerosmith, has the songs Jailbait, Walk This Way, many others. Bowie's got Rebel Rebel. It just goes on and on. It's a pattern of behavior, and it's continued on to this generation. While it's not maybe as blatant, we see it today. I mean, we see it with the Me Too movement. It's, it sucks. It's gross. So I, I just like to end all of this by reading part of Julia's statement. My name is Julia Misley, formerly Julia Holcomb. I am making this statement because at the age of 65, I have discovered that through a recent change in the law, I have a new opportunity to take legal action against those that abuse me in my youth. I want this action to expose an industry that protects celebrity offenders, to cleanse and hold accountable an industry that both exploited and allowed me to be exploited for years, along with so many other naive and vulnerable kids and adults. Because I know that I am not the only one who suffered abuse in the music industry. I feel it is time for me to take this stand and bring this action to speak up and stand in solidarity with other survivors. I hope that from this action, we can make the music industry safer, expose the predators in it, and expose those forces in the industry that have both enabled and created a culture of permissiveness and self-protection of themselves and the celebrity offenders among them. And while Steven Tyler can't take back what he did almost 50 years ago, what he can do is do the right thing which is hold himself accountable for his behavior, which we hope he does. Enough is a podcast centering on surviving abuse, harassment, and assault in the music scene. To help get the word out, please like and subscribe and share with your friends. If you have been on the receiving end of harm from someone, be it artist, venue owner, booking agent, audience member, or someone else, and would like to share your story on a future episode, please reach out to us at thisisenoughpodcast at gmail.com. All correspondences are kept confidential.